Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. On this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, we are delighted to share with you another conversation from our summer 2020 series entitled Dear Mentor Live. MBA edition. This series was inspired by the Dear Mentor column you can find at thewell.intervarsity.org slash Dear Mentor, where mentors answer questions sent in by our audience. The questions asked in this series originated at the Women's Luncheon during the annual Believers in Business Conference. It was hosted by the Director of Women in the Academy and Professions, Karen Guzman. In this episode, you'll hear from Cheryl Batchelder, former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Her book, Dare to Serve, tells the turnaround story of a struggling Popeyes through the principle of servant leadership. Currently, Cheryl serves on a number of boards, writes and speaks on leadership, and mentors women CEOs. We are really grateful that she took the time to offer her stories, tips, and wisdom to our community, and we hope you will find them inspiring in these challenging days. I'm also, in addition to being unique, in uh, reaching the CEO spot in a public company, uh, I also chose very intentionally to bring my faith to work and have studied and spoken very openly about the intersection of faith and work throughout my career. I'm married almost 40 years to a fabulous partner in life, Christopher, and we have raised three daughters, all of them uh, grown adults, two of them married, and we have now four grandsons. I can hardly keep up, uh, four under five. So it's a very exciting time in life to uh, have time to do mentoring activities like this and time for family. I grew up a little bit of all over the place. My parents were both from Indiana, so we started there. Uh, I actually, I noticed one of you's in the Bay Area. I went to high school in Cupertino, California, uh, right down the street from Apple kind of before Apple (laughs) existed, because that was the industry my father was in. My father helped start Silicon Valley, so he was one of my mentors my entire career. So we lived a little bit on the East Coast, a little bit on the West Coast, and ended up in Asia for 14 years, uh, which we fell in love with. And to this day, if I didn't live in Atlanta, Georgia, I'd probably live in Singapore, uh, where we lived as a family for 11 years. So that's a little bit about me. In Atlanta now for 12 years. Super, thanks. So you mentioned some intentionality about both your thinking as well as your uh, implementation around the idea of faith and work throughout your career. I'm curious, how did you develop your work ethic and your perspective on faith and work? I think there were probably three factors in my development. My family was a very strong influence. I'll tell you a little bit more about them. Our Midwestern heritage was a big part of my development. My father came from a dairy farm in northern Indiana. We had a work ethic that literally came out of plowing fields, bringing in the harvest and milking the cows. That uh, is pretty deeply embedded in myself and my siblings. And then the third factor, I think, is observation. I I got to watch my father's career up close and travel with him all over the world. And then I've had a a rich learning opportunity in, in my own education and career 
to observe and, and form conclusions about what works and doesn't work. So to touch a little bit on family, I'm the oldest of four kids. Some people think birth order is important. I'm one of them. I think the oldest gets an early sense of responsibility if only because they babysit everybody else. I'm the oldest of four. I had two very influential grandmothers. My mother and father's mothers were very influential and women of strong work ethic and strong faith. My mother's mother uh, worked kind of long before it was popular. She became a private home teacher to the students who had polio and was literally the first at-home polio teacher that we're aware of in the Midwest very early uh, in the 1900s. And then the other grandmother was the dairy farmer who worked from sunrise to sunset. So I had some easy access to working mother stories, a lot of support and encouragement, and no reason to, to complain. If I ever complained to my grandmother on the farm, she'd say, well, what time did you get up today? And did you can any tomatoes and weed the yard and make a pie? No, then stop complaining. And so I had that instilled, I think, at a very young age. And then there were my parents. My parents were extremely intentional parents, both my mom and my dad. My mother was a school teacher, and uh, therefore, my parents put a lot of emphasis on education and, and getting a good education. They put a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, mathematics, which for women, I think, is important. I never liked it very much, but it served me very well. So my family and extended family had a lot of influence uh, and still do to this day. Some people are interested in the fact that uh, of my four of us, four siblings, uh, all four of us became presidents or CEOs of business corporations. And two of us are retired and two still active in that role. So it was a little bit like having your own support group growing up. We talked often, shared experiences. And then the observation part's important, and it's particularly important as you start out career, is to have a notebook or a journal and to observe and write down things that you determine are important. I learned by observing good leadership. I learned by observing very bad leadership. I learned from having success. I learned from failure. I learned from making choices in my career or missing out on choices that I might have made. And so uh, I'm a big fan of journaling, learning from observation. Now, one of the things I might remind you of when I started working, there were hardly any women anywhere in leadership. And, you know, it was kind of the beginning of that. It was kind of trendy to bring women into leadership, but they were not widespread. You had very few role models mentors. I'm not even sure we could spell the word back then. Um, and we certainly didn't do Zoom calls. And so I think a lot of my perspective was kind of self-taught and influenced by my father's counsel. And I think today you have a lot more sources for mentorship and support than we did way back then. Yeah. So how about your whole perspective on faith and work and integrating the way your faith informs the way you think about and do your work? What's been your journey in that? 
Well, to be honest, no one really explained to me that work uh, was a mission field, work was part of calling. In my early career, nobody was talking about that. The only mission work was truly missionary work in a foreign country. And that's obviously to be a wonderful calling, but fewer than 5% of the population does that. And so we really missed an opportunity to have a biblical understanding of work. I personally came to understand it. I read a book a long time ago called Your Work Matters to God. And it was, I would call it a little bit of a primer on the theology of work from the Bible. And it took me straight to the word to find out, you know, was work talked about in the Bible? Oh my goodness, like 300 different stories. In fact, people often like to point out the Hebrew word uh, worship is also the word for work in the Bible. There's so many indicators and certainly so many leadership stories in the Bible. So about mid-career, I started to really pay attention to work being part of God's kingdom, part of his intent, designed for good, messed up by humans like every other institution, but uh, an honorable place to walk the Christian life and to have influence. And so I became part of, you know, what's now called the work and faith movement, probably, Karen, like you, probably in the first month it started. And I became vocal about it, talked about it, wrote about it, and spoke about it in the companies where I led because I thought it was good for everybody, Christians or not, to know that I had a deep foundation to my leadership approach. It wasn't just about me. And I could cite biblical principles in a way that let people know I would be honest. I would treat them with dignity. I would bring my principles to work. And I think, to be honest, today, probably more than ever, we see a new appreciation for leaders who come to work with a strong foundation and some principles. Yeah, great. So what have been some of the challenges along the way? Challenges in your career, curious about how you approached them, how you dealt with them. Um, you talked a little bit about journaling. I'm curious if your journal is full of <laughs> stories of challenges. And even how you prayed, right? During, during those times, just curious how you approached Now My uh, journals are funny to go back and read. And I've actually done some of that recently as I'm trying to make some organized sense of them. I still am a continuous learner. I read constantly, reflect constantly, write constantly in my journal. And wanna, I just always want to be uh, challenging my thinking and growing and, and that. So I did lots of Bible study along the way that really did enrich my biblical understanding. Early in my walk, I did a three-year go deep in every book of the Bible so that I was really grounded in particularly the Old Testament. I came from the Protestant traditions when I grew up, and, and we didn't know the Old Testament very well. Um, so I did, you know, formal Bible study in my church. I did what's it called, BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. And those groups not only give you Bible training and discipleship, but they give you community and people to talk these principles over with. Now, the only challenge was there weren't many women in senior business roles in my study groups and that. And so 
a lot of my work in an intersection of faith understanding I gained from reading. Eventually, there became conferences you could go to. I remember the first Henry Blackaby conference I went to where he spoke on uh, the workplace as a burgeoning, burgeoning place for ministry. And I was so excited. He told me that day that he knew personally 100 Christian CEOs. I thought, that's so cool. I can't believe there's 100, you know. And today, I'm part of that organization. It's called the CEO Forum. And it's Every Christian CEO that self-identifies, you know, that we know about, that we get get the brochure to, so to speak. And it's been an incredible organization to support my walk over the years. And I now serve on the board so that we can really be helpful to the next generation of leaders. So a, a real constant journey. I've read lots of books. I just yesterday was on a call of Oz Guinness. He was an influencer. Uh, Michael Novak, a long time ago, wrote Business is a Calling. He was a devout Catholic man. I read that book when I was working for a devout Catholic named Tom Monahan, who founded Domino's Pizza. And the one thing I will tell you, I only worked for one CEO that Faith identified in my entire career, and that was Tom Monahan. And so I only had one living, breathing, talking about it. CEO in my entire career to ask questions of. And he was fabulous because he was he was a very intentional man uh, and focused very much on values and ethics in the workplace. And uh, he wanted to talk about it. He often wanted to talk about that more than he wanted to talk about the business. So I learned a ton from observing him. I learned a ton from watching my father live his faith in the marketplace. And then others in middle management that were coming up the ranks and starting to share and talk about it. That's great. Well, let's talk about some sort of workplace situations or mm-hmm. uh, specific things about our jobs and work. So one of the questions that got asked in, uh, at the conference was, uh, when you transitioned jobs or functions, how did you deal with the uncertainty around change, fear of, uh, you know, moving into something that was new, taking on new responsibilities, even what we call now the imposter syndrome. Just curious about your own experience of change, changing jobs, changing functions, and how you um, engaged that. Well, I realized I didn't exactly answer your part about, did you have any trouble along the way? So I'll merge those two. (laughs) Uh, Because how you respond to transition is determined by what kind of transition it is. Some transitions are lovely. Some are terrible. Um, And I had all kinds of transitions. You know, I had transitions related to choosing to be married and have children, right? My husband and I both had careers. And we moved four times for his career and four times for mine. So uh, every time somebody was making a compromise, uh, you know, we were moving as a family, we were making tough decisions that we needed to be aligned on. So those were important transition points. Some transitions were really fun, big promotions where you move into the big new job and it's very exciting. And then uh, I got fired, which I talk about publicly all the time, because you don't learn very much from your successful transitions. But Getting fired is is a real smack in the head. And I would tell you every note I took in my journal after that experience, uh, I acted upon and it changed the way I moved forward in my career. So 
it depended on the circumstance. But I really want to embed in all of you the idea that it's a good idea to take risks and it's a good idea to make mistakes and even fail. It enriches your understanding. Uh, it grows you up. It teaches you new things and it keeps you humble, which might be the most important thing. You know, I've been a straight A student my entire life. You don't get fired if you're a straight A student, right? Well, you do. You do. No one, you know, particularly today, right? I mean, 30% of America has been fired in the last three months, right? Everybody gets fired sometime. Um, so better to prepare that there will be some rough and tumble times in your career. That's part of a career. That's part of life. You will learn to go deeper with God. You'll go deeper in your learning and you'll be better for it every single time. So I will tell you in transition, I, my wiring is to be a planner, a very proactive planner. I've had a plan since I was, I can remember my plan when I was nine years old. I knew exactly what I was going to do for a career, where I was going to go to college. And my mother said, why are you thinking about this? You're nine years old. Uh, but that is my nature. So I have a very strong, proactive, get out a spreadsheet, map it out, look at your alternatives, very kind of systematic approach. And I assume we're going to figure it out. I would not say I'm overly confident, but I'm very optimistic about life in general. I was really affirmed recently. There's a study that says 83% of CEOs are optimistic. And I was so excited because I'm optimistic. But I would tell you my planning nature and my optimism helps me in transition. I realize we're not all wired like that. So I would suggest to you that, that asking for help during the transition is a really good idea because if you're not the proactive planner or you have anxious thoughts or you aren't an eternal optimist, other people can provide energy to you in a transition, coaching, support, encouraging words, uh, keeping you upbeat, keeping you ready for the challenge. And so surround yourself by people that are for you and open to help that help you keep that good attitude and good work ethic about your plan. But sometimes in the transition, it's hard to get up every day and get after it again. But you need to. You need to. Because the number of doors you open determine the number of opportunities. And so that would be my headline thought. I'm, I don't want to be anything less than um, transparent with you, though. There were times I was fearful that I wasn't going to get the next opportunity after I got fired, for example. I didn't think anybody would ever hire me again after getting fired because I was a president of a company and it was on the cover of the business section of the local paper and you know, people knew about it. So I kind of thought I was a done thing then. And I, I got discouraged. I got depressed after that occasion. It took me a long time to work through those feelings and get back to my planful, optimistic self. Uh, but I can tell you the sooner you get there, the better, because wallowing in the hurt and the disappointment doesn't really get you to the next thing. And so you stay there long enough to learn, get your notes in your journal, and then pick yourself up and get back on the field. 
I often say to women, I wish I'd been a competitive athlete. I was before Title IX. No, you know, girls didn't play sports. And we missed out on some important lessons for business. And one of the lessons you learn, you know, playing any team sport on a field is you get knocked down and you mess up plays and you get yelled at by the coach. And boy, that is good preparation for work and for life because you want to be coached and you want to learn from your mistakes. I mean, we, we watch game films in business too, just like you watch game films after a football game. So if you played a competitive sport, that's going to be a huge aid to you. If you didn't learn about it, learn what you learn from playing a sport. And I'm not saying that so that you can, you know, talk about the baseball scores on Monday at work. I could care less about that stuff. But I do think there's skills attached to competition and to athletic endeavors that are are really helpful in times of challenge. Yeah, sort of the developing the thicker skin, right? That only happens. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thick skin is required. I mean, yeah. it, you know, when you when you get into a job like I had for the last 15 years and you're on national television and people pot shotting you for 16 directions, uh, thick skin, uh, you can't even do the job if you can't stand up to um, people challenging you, disagreeing with you, critiquing you, saying your hair color's not right on the TV show. I mean, you got to get ready for all kinds of feedback and not not find yourself losing your anchor every time you get coached and get negative feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned travel, moving, two careers, four moves, plus children, right? Right. <laughs> so how, did, how, how have you juggled all of the demands of work and family and community and uh, church Help us understand how you how, how you've juggled that. And I know you might talk about seasons and how things changed over various seasons, but yeah, talk about juggling. <laughs> there certainly are seasons. Um, I'm watching my daughters right now. You know, one of them is working at home right now with an eight month old on her lap because her babysitter can't come to work and her husband has to go to work. And I, you know, we're in a chaotic situation right now for being uh, young working mothers and. It's reminded me uh, a lot of some of the chaotic years, which there are. There are. It is a lot to be married and have young children and both of you work and juggle the home and the doctor's appointments and the choir practices and the soccer games. It's a lot. And so I want to be really respectful of the reality of that. If you choose to do all those things, you will be stretched thin. You will be tired. And you will therefore be uh, a very imperfect human, right? You'll have good days. You'll have bad days. uh, You'll have good humor on some days and you'll be a mess on another day. You'll feel like a star parent one afternoon and an idiot parent the next day. There are lots of ups and downs. It's an imperfect thing. That's why I'm so glad God is in control (laughs) because I, you know, I think we're all wise enough at this stage of life to know that we are imperfect. We are going to make mistakes, but God has a plan and he redeems our mistakes and he makes it 
right to his plan. And I leaned into that a lot to keep my wits about me. My priority in life was my guidepost. With my family, my priority was faith. I never debated in my head whether I would be married, have children, and go to church. Never. It was sacred territory. It was what I thought was the most important part of life, the richest part of life. And, you know, at my funeral, I was really wanting to say I lived that life of faith and family. So while I put a ton of effort into my work, it was never the first thing on the list. With my children, I tried to teach out of the same set of priorities, faith first, family, and then education probably for them as it was in my family. Um, My husband and I both emphasized uh, reading and studying and, and becoming able to explain yourself and know history. We put a lot of attention to that. We spent a lot of time figuring out where our kids were going to go to school, and we were almost never happy with that outcome. <laughs> we were always making adjustments to get them in the right place for the right education. I, I It's a rabbit trail, but I often say, could there just be one school that teaches both faith and a wonderful education because you find yourself trading off constantly as a parent between a school that is highly competent academically or a school that teaches character traits and faith. And we constantly were challenged to find both. Uh, It made us today, we're major investors in classical Christian education because we became convinced that that was one solution that really worked. So that kind of tells you our, our, construct around it, family, uh, faith first, family, and education. But probably the most important thing is what happened to my kids, because that's far more a statement of my parenting and managing all this than anything I tell you. And I'll tell you two things. My daughters were interviewed for a faith at work, I'd call it a documentary kind of thing, about my career. And it was really interesting to hear them tell other people about it, you know, because your children don't tell you those things. And of course, the film producers were looking for tension and drama and excitement. (laughs) And so they asked my kids some really pressing questions. And what I was really delighted by is both of them were articulate about the importance of faith and family. Both of them saw their parents as very dedicated parents, not perfect, but dedicated. Both of them talked about one of the funnier lines was my oldest child. They were pressing in on her and saying, what was it like when your mother had breast cancer? Was it terrible? And she looked at him and said, you know, the way my mom handled it, I think I was far more worried about what color my prom dress was. And I loved that answer because one, it was honest, but it it also said, you know, we brought her into those conversations, but we didn't trouble our children with every trouble in life. And we allowed them to have a childhood and we allowed them to ask questions and we dealt with them. We had family meetings every Sunday night. We dealt with faith and life questions. And I always had a little lesson plan and some of my lessons were powerful and some of them were flops, but we always did it. And then we'd go over the calendar for the week and what was going on and where the travel was happening and what was for dinner and some of those logistics. 
Now, I did have just two weeks ago, I thought this might be important to share. My second daughter, who's 29 with the eight-month-old, she said, Mom, you didn't teach me everything I needed to know. And I don't know about you, Karen, but my brain went, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> just right. a few things. <laughs> I'm sure I missed stuff. And so I just said that. I said, Katie, I am sure that's true. And I'm sure I missed important things that I could have taught you. You know, maybe I, I wasn't, I didn't teach her how to cook, for example. That might have been helpful. But I'm sure she was thinking about something that she'd struggled with. And I didn't get that particular lesson just right. But I think that's important for her to know as a new parent, that you can't have all the answers. You can't be perfect. There's no handbook. And you teach your children some truth about life when they see that over the long haul. So those are a few thoughts. We could this. There's lots of stories. So when we get to the Q and A, <laughs> if you want more war stories about working mom, I the one that comes to mind right off the bat is when my oldest was in middle school. I always organized our life on the spreadsheet, you know, and the spreadsheet was on the kitchen counter and it told you when to brush your teeth and pick up your towels and all that. And in middle school, she just had a complete revolt and said, "There will never be a spreadsheet laying out for the public to see in our house again." <laughs> I said, huh, well, I guess that might be embarrassing to a teenager. So we put it in the drawer and it wasn't on the counter anymore. <laughs> That's great. So here's a question. Is it true that the most important relationships and decisions happen on the golf course? How can the proverbial golf course or the actual golf course? How can women connect uh, with key influencers and or decision makers if they're not one of the guys, if they're not invited to go play golf? Right. Well, and depending on your field, you know, there are fields, commercial real estate is one where I've done a lot of business where golf is huge. Corporate golf is huge. In some cultures, you know, in New York City, the finance community, it tends to be lunch or dinner type things, but they tend to be in private clubs, places where women aren't always easily included or haven't been included in the past. So there's no question that we bump up against situations where it's hard to be part of the informal business conversation. And so, but I'll tell you what, you can't you can't fake your way through that. What do I mean by that? I, I did at one point decide that I probably had to play golf. And so I went out, bought the outfits and the cute shoes and got lessons. You know, I never go out unprepared. And on my very first foursome uh, with big league corporate golfers, I found out they hate to play with bad golfers. And I was a really bad golfer, right? It's my first time out. And so I realized that there could be more tension and disruption in my business relationships if I proceeded to be a bad golfer and annoy them all day long than if I just left those things uh, off the table. And what I did instead, and it was, you know, there may have been imperfections in it, but I did learn that other men had this problem too. There are men that only play tennis. There are men that don't do a sport at all. There are men that would rather read books. And it took me a while to figure that out, that they said no to, and they found other ways around. 
and I would, I thought about this, Karen, when you told me you're going to ask me this question, almost all of my business decision-making meetings, contract negotiations, they were in conference rooms, hotel conference rooms, business settings, or at the office. And I managed to get them all done. I never missed a deal or uh, uh, important negotiation. And as I got further in my career, I had more control over them. Like the largest mm -hmm. transaction I ever negotiated was over a glass of iced tea in a restaurant at lunch. And it was a $45 million deal. And uh, we talked through the terms verbally, didn't write anything on a napkin, just talked about it. But I was, that's when the deal occurred. So I think we have to use the ways we know understand and are comfortable and and find other ways to connect with men uh, and people of color and people of international experience. All of those take some new thinking about how to do them. I did business for years in the Middle East and in many countries, the men weren't allowed to look at me or dinner with me, but they did talk to me. And we would walk through, you know, I was in the retail business, so we would walk through retail buildings, you know, looking at two different directions and talking through our business. We got lots of business done and they were honoring their culture and I was honoring mine. And uh, we didn't have, you know, drinks over dinner or anything untoward. We just adapted to the service. So I, I would tell you it can be done. It's not that there won't be awkward moments, but it can be done. Yeah. Great. So any advice that you have to give to women who are finishing up their MBAs or, you know, beginning their careers at the start of their careers, particularly right now in the midst of the pandemic and all the uncertainty that is around that, either for those who are looking for jobs or what the job world is even going to look like, right, as we move forward. So just, yeah, just any words of advice. Yes, I think we first have to all acknowledge that it is a very choppy time. And it's going to be that way. The job market's going to be choppy for at least a year. And I'm sure you all know this, but I've sat on lots of board meeting calls and we furloughed so many people. And the first job everybody has is to bring back the people they know, right? And that have been producing results and need their jobs back, you know? So Right now, even, we're just talking about that. We're just starting across industries to bring people back and decide how many are coming back for sure, and some won't be coming back. So there's all that right now. So that comes ahead of thinking about the future and new hires and new investments where we might need new skills. Uh, that's a ways down the pike. So I, I think, you know, know the facts of the current situation and be realistic about transitioning in this time. It's going to be tougher. The good news is you will be in a very large cohort of people. It's not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of one of the most unusual times in history. So what I would really urge you to do is however you find a path through that, you know, whether you take a job that you think is not quite optimal 
or even a job that you might say is not up to your skills, or you take an internship instead of a full-time job, whatever is necessary to work through this time is find a way to explain that to people in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Find a way to make that an explanation that you can stand behind. Because I can tell you from experience that what you do with this time, if I'm interviewing you, what you do with this time matters more to me than how important a job it is or whether it was on your career path. Did you use it to learn? Okay. So let's say you get a job, you're underemployed. What online courses did you continue to take? What webinars did you listen? What did you read? How did you grow yourself? Right. Or what did you learn? You go into a company that's not the one you'd hoped for. Well, you can still learn a new industry and you can still learn something from those people. And you can still use that opportunity to build stories for your future conversations about how you learn, how you contribute, how you jumped on a team and quickly added value. Make sure you make something of the time you've been given, no matter what the opportunity. And, and I don't want you to think I'm, my optimism is at work here. I can tell you concrete stories. I thought of one tonight with them. Um, I've been working recently with a super talented uh, executive head of HR in the retail industry. And I'm telling you, when she was at a tough spot, young, she worked sales and retail, selling clothing, you know, some jeans, whatever. And she uses every bit of that experience to this very day to be connected to frontline workers, understand where they're coming from, understand what they need from their companies communicate with them in astute ways. She is, you know, 20 odd years later using every bit of that. So I'm, you know, I'm telling you, you can be a barista at Starbucks, you can sell blue jeans and create career stories out of it that are meaningful and real and make you better down the road. I wrote a lot of that down, Cheryl. That was super. <laughs> really appreciate that's just that whole idea of even if you're not ultimately where you want to be to use the time that you're that you're in the midst of to to build for the next for the next thing well I've got one more question to ask and then we'll take take questions from folks on the call so my last question Cheryl is what spiritual practices or habits have sustained you over the years and have they have they changed, right? Have they changed during the various seasons of your life? And, and if so, uh, how? Yes, I, I've always enjoyed reading about different kinds of spiritual disciplines. And I think the reason is I have a lot of creative brain. I never can remember if that's right or left. But anyway, I have both, you know, the financial brain and the creative brain brain. I started my career in advertising production. I love visual arts. So I'm creative and I have kind of a resistance to structure and routines that comes with creativity, right? You don't like a lot of boundaries. And so I'm not a super routine spiritual person. I have good friends like that, that I admire one of the best. He says he gets up four hours every day of his life before his first appointment and spends his time with God, his time with his spouse, his time with breakfast, and his time exercising. And I've really admired him for the last 
20 years, but I'll never do that. Never. I one, I don't get up early. Two, I, I just can't do that kind of disciplined life and be consistent about it. So I try to keep my spiritual practices fresh. So I will do Bible studies for a time and then I'll learn about like Lectio Divino, another type of study of scripture. And I'll do that for a while because it's rich and fresh uh, to see the Bible in that way. I use music a lot in my quiet times. Songs, uh, spiritual songs speak to me. Worship songs uh, help me really get in the heart of worship. So music is a huge part. Reading books, I'm a little bit of a theology junkie. I'm currently reading everything Dallas Willard ever wrote. And <laughs> I want to be done by the end of the summer because I just can't get enough of it. I am incredibly taken by his insights theologically. And uh, they're really meaningful in the work matters conversation. So reading is a big part of it. I will say to your point about stages of life, um, I'm a lot more routine now because I have more control of my time than I was as a young mother or I was as a CEO. As a young mother, I, I never made it out of bed before my, one of my kids woke up at 5.30 in the morning, right? So that was toast. So my, I might grab uh, quiet time during the workday or it might do it at bedtime. In my uh, CEO role, I kept... Uh, practices right on my desk at work. And I often tried to get there an hour before anybody else, because that could be a lovely time. The sun's rising behind your desk and you're reading some new insight and you're looking at the word and you're preparing for the day. So the, I enjoyed that a lot at that stage of life. And now I have a lot more routine daily. But I will tell you probably the, the discipline I learned uh, in the last decade that I would recommend to you at any age, and I wish I had found it sooner, was the discipline of uh, solitude and silence. Because I'm telling you, I never heard more from God than when I learned how to be quiet. It's like he goes, well, finally, you're interested in listening. <laughs> and you can tell I like to talk. So I really learned to work solitude, silent retreats. Every year I was a CEO, I did a silent retreat one full day every quarter. And I used, I had a guided, a person guide me through a silent retreat to make sure I did it and stuck with it and made it meaningful with uh, deep exploration of scripture and what God was saying. Today, the thing you've got to work against is hurry. One of the reasons I like Dallas Willard so much is he's the person who said the key to the spiritual life is the relentless elimination of hurry. And I know that each of you has a problem with hurry in your life because we all do. Life is going at a crazy pace and all these, you know, devices and things that are attached. I've got four of them sitting in front of me right now. I, I mean, they keep us wired constantly and they keep us apart from God. And so silence and solitude are a discipline that I would take really seriously if I were going back to the beginning of my early career days and build more in. It will make you a better leader. It'll give you clarity about what God's up to and how you can join him there. It will help keep you calm. 
It will make you a nicer person to your family. I mean, there's like a hundred reasons, but the most important one is the proximity it gives you to God. Yeah, Cheryl, I remember over coffee, you mentioning the effect that solitude had on the other women CEOs that you've met with over the years and just the profound effect it had on them. And that really stuck with me. I remember telling several people after we had that chat about how how significant it has you saw it in the lives of these other women that you were mentoring as you invited is, them into that. Yeah, it is it was amazing to me. I discipled this group of ten Christian women CEOs and they're just a delightful group. But we've really taught them how to untether themselves for 24 hours and actually be available in the room. And they would tell you that is one, the single best benefit of the class is that we untethered them (laughs) one day a quarter and that it has really enriched their God-given perspective. You just cannot rush all the time morning till night and hear from God. It it is too noisy. I constantly remind myself of Elijah. It's the best story for a worn out working mother there is because he was trying to hear God, but he was working so hard and he was so tired and he finally collapses in exhaustion Mm -hmm. in the desert. And he's still not hearing from God. He's waiting for thunderclaps and big, you know, burning bushes and all that. And it was in the quiet whisper he heard God's voice after he collapsed on the ground. And so I want to get ahead of the collapse. I I want to be hearing God before I'm toast. But that takes, that's a discipline. Yeah, absolutely. Super. Well, I have a couple of questions that have come into the chat here that I'm going to ask. The first one says, you said you've always had a plan. Has there ever been a time when life or career did not go according to plan? And how did you respond to that? Well, probably the there were two really big times like that. One of them is I, I was in like my favorite job ever. And the division was doing well. We'd had lots of innovation. I mean, it's just one of those pinnacle time. And I was in the marketing and product development department. We were just creating excitement and innovative ideas and new advertising. Every day was fun. And then I got a new boss and he was definitely not fun. And it started like day one. And it was amazing how fast the mojo of our team and our organization and it hurt our performance. We became less good because we were not excited to be at work. And I'll tell you, I I got really mad about six months into that at how far we'd fallen from the high performance team that we'd been. And we were still the same people, but the atmosphere was just burdensome. He was condescending and critical and constantly telling us what was wrong with us and never saying an affirming, encouraging word. And I will tell you, this is a moment where I did go in on a Monday morning and quit without having another job. My husband did the same thing that week, so I don't recommend that. That was a (laughs) bad couple decision, but that's what we did. 
But the good news is it gave us the flexibility to say, okay, we're out of here. We are moving to a new place in time. And we both have the flexibility to look at our options because we both just quit. Out of that, we both found ourselves in better places. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't immediate. You know, it was probably a year later in total by the time we moved and got situated and all set up in new places. But it turned out okay. So I would tell you the places where what I learned from that is if you're in a completely untenable place, if you're working in a place where you don't share their values or where you're being asked to do things in a, for, uh, an approach you can't support, or you're working for an impossible leader that doesn't value and respect you and treat you well, it quit. Uh, life is too short and you will find you are better off finding a better place, even if it takes some time. That's what I learned from that circumstance. My dad told me, he said, take the dust off your feet and move on. And I did that that time and it was good. The next time when I got fired, it was far more troubling a time. It wasn't clear cut. I had lost confidence. I felt bruised. I didn't know how to recover. It really impacted my family because my husband had quit his job for that job. So, you know, we're leaning on my one income, and we had one in high school, one in middle school, not a good time to move. Everything about it was troubling. And I, I would tell you, I muddled through that. I couldn't figure it out. We made some haphazard decisions to just kind of get along. We moved back home towards, you know, a place that we knew and kind of started there. Uh, but we, we were a little muddled there for a while while we both figured out the next step and reoriented. I, uh, my husband probably would tell you, I gave him an ultimatum. He had, he had stepped back from my job. So when I lose my job, I say, you need to get a job. <laughs> and he did. And uh, he got right back to work and off we went. But uh, he probably would say he didn't need that lecture from me to know that. And uh, so not all perfectly, again, is the answer. And I had to learn my way through that. And I, it took me quite a while to sort out what I had figured out, what I'd learned from that experience and how to apply it. Long story mm -hmm. short, I said, well, now that I'm done being a president, now that I'm toast, I'll have to serve on boards. So I got myself on my first board, got prepared first by taking some classes and, and getting kind of certified to be a board member, got on a board. And then it was my second board where I was on the board of Popeyes and the CEO quit and the board asked me to step in and it led to the best 10 years of my entire career. So you don't know what God's up his sleeve, got up his sleeve. I mean, that was, you know, in my worldview, kind of miraculous. I, you know, I call it my, my personal redemption, right? I went from mud uh, to being successful again in the world sense of the word, you know, so you don't know. It may be a muddle, but that too may be where you learn the most. Every single thing I did as a leader of Popeye stemmed from what I learned not to do at the prior job. I would, I can tell you that without a doubt. I, there would have been no uh, ten-year run there without the learning I had from messing up. Well, somewhat related to that, there are a couple of questions around uh, passion and. The question is often when you're interviewing, you're asked about what you're passionate about and how would you, um, how did you put your passion uh, maybe into a role that was just necessary because you needed a good job 
Yeah. Uh, you know, related is another question, just sort of this idea that you're in a job, there's not a lot of joy, you know, there's not a lot of fruit for a long time, but suggestions there. So they're sort of related. Yeah, I I really believe, you know, I said in the book I wrote, my mother taught me this cliche, which was your attitude is your altitude. And I believe you can find purpose, intent, meaning, even in a job you're not that crazy about, or even in an industry that's not your dream. Because there's many different ways to see a path and a purpose in your work. So a real world time, when I was the CEO of a company selling fried chicken, trust me, there were more than a few people that asked me why I was passionate about selling fried chicken. In fact, for reporters, it was their favorite question. And I would look straight at him and say, you know, it's really never occurred to me that I'm passionately selling fried chicken. No, I am in the franchising business and I am putting people in business as entrepreneurs and 41% of them are immigrants to this country looking for the American dream. And I've had the opportunity to provide a business to them that has enabled them to raise their families, send the first generation to college employ 35 people in every restaurant. You know, we're part of American uh, capitalism. You know, we, we create jobs for people. We create careers for people. We create entrepreneurs in the franchising business. And so I really was genuinely excited about that. I didn't have to make that up. That was real. I My favorite franchisee at Popeye's, his name is Law Salsanzana in New York City. And he came the United States from Afghanistan with $2 in his pocket. And he became the owner of 35 Popeye's restaurants and a really nice house in Long Island. And I'm thrilled for him and for his family. That was a joy and that was a passion. So make sure, I guess, so the first point is make sure you've looked at all the angles of what you could be passionate about at work. The last years of my career, I was just passionate about developing leaders. I could have been in charge of any widget you gave mm-hmm. me. I was mm-hmm. so excited about coaching and developing people to be servant leaders with lots of courage and lots of humility. And I could have gotten up for the rest of the time and been excited about that. So there's a lot of ways to think about your job. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you are really in kind of what you would call a situation that does not, you can't find that angle of joy. The other place I'd tell you to look is in the people that God has put around you, because I have found a tremendous amount of joy in relationships, but you have to cultivate relationships, right? You have to share experiences and share interests, but I have read books, you know, you and I were talking about our book club earlier, right? I've done book clubs with people I work with. I've gotten to know their families. There's a lot of ways to make Uh, the workplace rich through relationships. And by the Mm -hmm. way, when you look Mm -hmm. back on your work, it's kind of all you remember were the people that you worked with. You don't remember the marketing campaign 13 years ago. Cheryl, I really appreciate your willingness to give us some time tonight and to answer 
our spur of the moment questions in addition to the, the ones that I sent you to prepare <laughs> ahead of time, right? So thank you for being with us. Thank you for all of the words of wisdom and the things that you've shared with us. So thank you everybody for coming. Everybody, I really enjoyed being with you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. Information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.